Hello and welcome to the Warrior Nation podcast, a deep dive into military affairs and the relationship between defence, the armed forces and civil society in modern Britain, produced and edited by Forces Watch. Forces Watch is a UK organisation dedicated to investigating militarisation, military ethics and human rights concerns. We expose and challenge unethical military recruitment practices, issues affecting personnel and veterans and initiatives that aim to build support for war. I'm Joe Glenton. I'm a former soldier, Afghanistan veteran, author, defence journalist and now Forces Watch comms officer. I'm Rihanna Louise, working on education and outreach at Forces Watch. My key areas of research and advocacy have been around British military recruitment practices, the campaign to raise the minimum age of recruitment to 18, militarisation and the anti-militarist movement. Today we're talking with Ron Ware and Antonia Dawes. Ron is an academic and currently professor at Kingston University. Her phenomenal career has included being editor of the anti-fascist Searchlight magazine, teaching cultural geography at Greenwich University and teaching sociology and gender studies at Yale University. Her recent book, Military Migrants, addressed the relationship between racism and militarism in the contemporary post-colonial context. Today, her work engages more explicitly with initiatives in peace studies that bring together concern with militarisation, climate change, social injustice, environmental degradation and other root causes of global conflict. Antonia Dawes is the incoming lecturer in social justice in the School of Education, Communication and Society at King's College London. Antonia's research interests address race and racialization, multilingualism, migration and militarization. Her book, Race Talk, Languages of Racism and Resistance in Neapolitan Street Markets, is forthcoming with Manchester University Press. Fran and Antonia with Mitra Pariar are currently engaged in a two-year study of an army town in Wiltshire entitled The Military in Our Midst, funded by the Leverhulme Trust. Through the study, they hope to reveal the effects of significant policy changes aimed at reorganising the relationship between military and civilian communities. Fran and Antonia have an enormous amount of interesting knowledge and experience. We can't even begin to touch on all of it today. We'll mainly be focusing on their currently Military in Our Midst project, looking at Britain's new super garrisons and studying an army town in Wiltshire. Could you both share with us what first sparked your interest in researching military-related issues? Well, it has to be Iraq. It's like rage and despair about Iraq and curiosity about how any government could really command a whole lot of men to go over and bomb another country, particularly without any provocation from them and without legal sanction. Um, I'd actually been living in the States during 9-11 and up to that point, up to 2005, so I could sort of understand there the manipulation of public opinion and the, and the depth of feeling about being attacked like that for the first time. Not sympathise, but I could sort of see that. But in the case of the UK, I, I, had, I just could not understand it. So then I, then I realised that these were questions that were very hard to answer. You know, when you, when you feel curious about something, you have to ask, why don't I know? Why don't we know? Why is no one talking about this? And of course, at that time, in 2006, when I started thinking about this, the, the British armed forces were much more secluded behind barbed wire than they are now. It was a very different affair. It was, it was a sort of, you weren't really supposed to look at them unless you were a specialist and had permission from, I don't know, King's War Studies. I think um, for myself, um, I came at this from a different geographical context. Um, back in 2010, when I started doing my PhD, I wanted um, to do a project about race and racism in Naples and southern Italy. Um, and um, although I have family there, and so I've grown up um, being very aware of the NATO presence in the city, um, and there has been a significant foreign military presence there since um, 1943 when the Allies occupied the city. 
Um, and so I sort of grew up knowing that you used to fly into a military airport, um, which it's not a military airport now. And I think looking back, some of my first experiences with the idea of race were when I met the children of um, black soldiers based in the city and listened to how unhappy they were living there um, and not really understanding what their problem was. And I think I'm, now I, I see this as being part of a kind of, of hi a history of, of fraught race relations and relationships between the US and Italy. Um, and how they're played out there. Um, so there's this memory of biracial occupation city and children in the city and um, how this suffuses kind of contemporary um, relationships um, in an age of migration from sub-Saharan Africa. So I was interested in looking at this stuff but my project didn't eventually take that kind of turn. I ended up doing a project about street markets um, but the, this idea of Naples being essentially a big garrison city kind of suffused the work and it's, it's part of the book that I've written now. And it's work I'd like to take forwards. Um, then, meanwhile, back in 2013, Ron got me involved in um, a project looking at everyday life in garrison towns across the south of the UK, um, which were in the process of being transformed into super garrisons following um, the 2010 Strategic Defence and Security Review. So we did this pilot study in Colchester, Tidworth and Aldershot, and we uncovered loads of interesting and quite disturbing material about um, what it means as a civilian to live alongside the military in terms of um, housing and how that provision is sorted out, um, the provision of ever-decreasing social welfare resources, um, veterans and their place in society, um, intimate relationships and social lives. And this really piqued my interest because I could see the connections with what I had been seeing in Naples and had grown up with um, and what, what military occupations are like and lived and lived with, how they lived on the ground. Um, so this pilot study eventually became the project that we're now doing um, and which I've been working on for the last year. I've also separately been working on um, a project with reservists across the south of the UK um, and how their lives and working lives have changed dramatically since 2010 and those kinds of policy changes. So I think in many different ways and from the perspectives of different individuals and their lives, um, in different places across the world, I've been tracking the, the lived implications of policy decisions about, made for, about the military and its place in society over the last decade. Um, so before we go into your current project a bit more, could you give us an overview of your military migrants book, Ron? Um, what are some of its core premises and its findings? Okay, so I began research on, on that project in 2000 and seven, two thousand and eight. And as I said before, it was driven really by curiosity about how, you know, how how the army in particular works as an organization, um, as part of this huge institution that is very inaccessible. But the book is specifically about the experience of soldiers from Commonwealth countries who were recruited between nineteen ninety eight, when New Labour came in, and two thousand and thirteen. There's actually a five year residency requirement that can be waived or reinstated at any time depending on their need for recruitment and so on. So, in fact, they've reinstated it quite recently so they can get a limited number of recru recruits guaranteed from Commonwealth countries. But the thing is, there are no automatic rights to citizenship for those who are non-nationals who serve in the British military, and there never has been. So often you would be talking about this book and uh, this project and someone would say, oh, so that's how they get citizenship. Well, no, it isn't. And no one ever really thought about that in the 90s when they started recruiting very, very heavily from countries like Fiji, many of the Caribbean countries, parts of West Africa. It hadn't occurred to anyone that people might be interested in getting citizenship at some point. 
So I studied this process, um, how the army had been forced to change its own procedures in terms of army welfare, you know, giving advice. Nobody was qualified, nobody knew about immigration advice. It was, it was just sheer misery for the individuals concerned. And then how they tried to get their act together and sort of confront the Home Office with the paradoxes involved in employing migrants within the armed forces. So one strand was really about the experience of being a migrant in an organisation that's, that's you know, exceptionally symbolic of national identity and which requires you to kill and be killed and be prepared to die, um, not for the country but for the Queen. And of course, let's not forget there are 15, 16 countries in the Commonwealth who share the same Queen as we do, mm. which meant it was really important. One of the reasons it was really important to put this particular chapter in the context of the longer history of colonialism. So it was a shocking story that I discovered, one in which the migrants and their families were bearing the brunt of immigration policies that were becoming increasingly punitive, um, particularly, well, obviously, when Theresa May announced the hostile environment from 2010 onwards. It became almost untenable because the visas, for example, for family members coming from, from Fiji which was, it were in the thousands, and there was no extra help for people who were trying to bring their families here, you know, who, who wanted a long-term career in the army. So the result was that the, the migrant soldier at that time was, you know, like their colleagues, were being viewed as heroes uh, in terms of their military service. But then they were being demonised as scroungers when it came to sorting out visas or, or sorting out the immigration status or even being seen out of uniform. And there were very few concessions for them. So I really examined that from, from their point of view uh, and from the point of view of the institution as well. And the second strand looked at the uh, history of racism and discrimination inside the armed forces which of course is a very interesting story and one that was very much affected by things like the McPherson report and by the legal sanctions that were threatened when the army, particularly because they had more, more minorities, when they didn't adhere to some of the new laws that came in, particularly the, around religion and, and equality. So that was another very interesting story, looking at how they were trying to address these issues of, of racism inside the institution, like many other organisations, you know, not least universities where I've worked. You know, how do you, how do you deal with endemic racism in the institution, particularly the kind of bullying and harassment that, that happens in an organisation like the armed forces, uh, with its particular internal cultures, its internal hierarchies, its the job they're being trained to do and so on. And I have to say here that I did at the time, 2008 to 2011-12, I did have very generous and helpful contacts within the sort of HR section of the army who guided me through the different parts of the organisation so that I could talk to all kinds of people, from generals to new recruits, literally just off the plane. In fact, once we went to Heathrow to pick somebody up who'd come from Belize. Uh, but of course, within the army, there's, um, as you know, there's a huge sort of rate of personnel change and... By the time the book came out, there was quite a different climate and there was more defensiveness, obviously, uh, when the book was published and it looked like it might not have been able to, I might not have been able to do that kind of research um, if I'd started a bit later. So the third thing is, all this took place against the background of increased militarisation, exactly the story that Paul Dixon tells in, in Warrior Nation, and one of which you, know, you have also, as an organisation, been monitoring yourselves. But I sat down in 2008 to give a sort of preliminary talk about the sort of figure of the soldier, which became absolutely fascinating to me. And I started tracking what had happened from literally 2006 onwards with things like the development of Help for Heroes, the military covenant mm -hmm. popping up, all those kind of things. And then I was able to just track it in real time all the way through. So that was really the, the context for these um, some of these issues. 
And this research we're doing now is, an, is really an attempt to see what happened and to continue to monitor it. It's particularly this attempt to, to recognise the separation of the army from civil society and to try and embed it more within our social institutions, uh, to raise the status of the armed forces generally, and to, you know, in many ways make civil society pick up a lot of unseen costs. Um, at the same time, we also have to see the, the reforms that have been going on within, as one of the effects of neoliberal government, of, of you know, economic restructuring, reducing costs, trying to pass them over to other people, rationalising real estate, because, you know, the MOD is the second biggest landowner in the UK after the Forestry Commission, right. as I understand it, according to that fantastic website, Who Owns England? <laughs> That's fascinating. Thanks, Brian. So um, we're going to move on to your, your current project, Military in Our Midst. So it would be good for you to just clarify what exactly is a super garrison, which is a key part of your, your research, what is army basing, and then why these changes are taking place now. In simple terms, um, the idea of the super garrison is to concentrate a reduced army in larger numbers in fewer places. So there's going to be, there's four designated super garrison areas in um, the UK. Um, and one of those areas is the area that we're currently doing our research in on Salisbury Plain. And um, connected to that, army basing follows the decision made concurrently with the idea of forming super garrisons to bring the troops back from and their families from bases in Germany and base them in these new super garrisons mm -hmm. alongside a major restructuring. So mm -hmm. a lot of movement going on within the UK and then emptying the bases in Germany and bringing everybody back. And, and why is that happening? Well, following the Strategic Defence and Security Review, there were major cuts to the defence budget. So one of the main reasons why the army is being reorganised in this way is because of money. Mm -hmm. and money restraints, although that's not the official discourse. The official discourse is around a kind of reformulation of the relationship between the military institution and civilian society. Mm -hmm. So um, in terms of the kind of money argument, neoliberal changes in society have forced the the, the military to rationalise what, what it's doing. So where historically... Um, regiments had a kind of um, connection to um, the part of the UK in which they were based, which was a really symbolic emotional connection and people were recruited from that area, that has progressively um, fallen away. And so instead of um, having a kind of geographical link to particular locations, the army is becoming an institution of professional soldiers mm -hmm. who, um, who join in order to become career soldiers and um, who whose lives follow the kind of pattern of other professional people, um, you know. Um, so we can see here a kind of a marked progression towards a kind of private, privatised military. Mm -hmm. I think going, going back to your question about why closing the bases in Germany, I think calculations were made. I think there was a sense that that belonged to an earlier sort of geopolitical policy mm -hmm. and strategy, and the time had finished. I mean, one of the reasons they they they, what they held on to the bases in Germany was the spaces for training, particularly with with tanks and armored vehicles. And I, you know, I suspect I, I don't know I suspect because there wasn't one message coming through. No. I mean, the Strategic um, Defense and Security Review took place in two thousand and ten after the coalition government came to power. So it was an attempt to you know, for the Lib Dems and the Conservatives to put their stamp on military policy, you know, mm -hmm. taking up issues of the military covenant, the armed forces covenant, so on and so forth, and going with that. 
So closing the bases seemed an obvious thing to cut costs. Um, at the same time, they were rationalising, restructuring and sort of smoothing out. They also decided to cut personnel. You will remember they decided we're going to cut personnel down to about 82,000. Mm-hmm. People were getting redundancy notices when they were actually out in Afghanistan still. You know, there was a big fuss about that mm-hmm. at the time. Um, and they were putting their faith in this new policy of hiring reserves, which is something that um, Antonia was looking at in, in her last project, recruiting a lot more reservists. So a number of other events took place, like um, you know, privatising the whole recruitment practice. Lots of different changes took place. And I have to say, as they have done in all our other institutions, including universities, mm-hmm. have been horribly cut and changed and reformulated and rationalised and mm-hmm. restructured. So it was partly that... Partly post, you know, 2008, the crash, you know, and, and thinking about uh, how to make this a sort of leaner organisation. And so these decisions were made and now we, we wanted to follow and keep tracking the implications of those policy changes, which now is almost a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the idea, the practical changes, but also the ideological explanation for these changes or the, the rationalisation, justification of these changes mm-hmm. and what it might mean for for us, you know, for society. So could you talk a bit more about what specifically you are researching and, and how you're doing that and, and why is it important for, for people to know more about what's happening? I would say that there isn't, at the moment, there isn't, that we've come across any account of what it's like to live in a military town. We know examples from the US, mm-hmm. which have been very helpful, influential. You know, there are a number of fantastic military geographers in this country, but as yet, there is no systematic ethnographic study of a military base from the point of view of civilians living around there, and from the point of view of military families, so Until that's the first yours. thing. That's the first thing <laughs> we're doing. Exactly, we're actually including even uh, long, even uh, Colchester and Catcher. Yeah. has been no. That's very interesting because those are long, long-standing, long-standing big bases, aren't they? Big bases. And one of the things we want to do is look at it within a historical context. Uh, regiments used to be based in, in counties, lo- local areas. Used to research locally and have names and be proud of where they come from. All the rest of it special uniforms, special feathers in their hats. And over the second half of the 20th century, all those were being cut, 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 or amalgamated um, with a lot of protests and nostalgia and so on. And and here we are now when there's almost no connection between where you're recruited from and what regiment you go into. It's an it's a entirely professional organisation for various other reasons, which we don't need to go into. So we wanted to make this study, we wanted to make this book, and have a real feeling of what it is like to live in a military area. You know, lots of different ages, backgrounds, um, men, women, old, young, you know, etc., etc. We wanted to know what it's like. I grew up actually near Andover, which is the town nearest Tidworth, the Mm -hmm. area we're actually looking at. And, of course, there was this thing about, like, Colchester, you know, Saturday nights you didn't go there because of the... Squaddies, etc., etc., and the violence um, that's changed a bit now. But uh, you know, there is a sort of you know military bases, garrison towns have a particular reputation, and no one has really studied it in great detail. Mm. Certainly in the twenty first century. So that's the first thing we wanted to do. So in order to do that, we're taking a quite immersive approach, uh-huh. as Ron has laid out, um, at spending large amounts of time hanging out there, making connections to all sorts of different people who live there. And this is quite an unusual way of Mm -hmm. studying the military, and it's not a way in which the military is used to understanding itself Mm -hmm. and how it works and its effect. So so we're taking this, uh, what we would call an ethnographic approach. And just to add to that, uh, Mitra Periyar, who couldn't be here today, he's actually living down there, actually next door. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's... 
completely immersed in it. Completely immersed in it. And we're really interested in the relationships and implications for society mm-hmm. in terms of how we uncover um, the experience of costs, levels of fear, um, how people feel about security in those areas, the possible benefits of having a large military presence, um, what kinds of militaristic feelings might be inculcated in people, um, so and how this relates to questions of nationalism and our, our past. And so on the one hand we're trying to track the lived implications of policy decisions that we've been outlining over the course of this discussion, um, which are about a decade old now, and so uh, what are the kind of what are the ramifications of those decisions for the people who those decisions have been made for? But we're also taking a longer historical view that um, takes into account the the history of um, the military presence in this area, which is quite symbolic, connected to the colonial past and the colonial wars of the late nineteenth century. Um, and we're trying to track how that's transformed the landscape and how that becomes part of people's feelings about the military being in that place. Brilliant. Well, I'm really looking forward to reading it when you're, when you're done. So you've written for Open Democracy a lot over the years, Ron, and I would encourage our listeners to go and go and um, mine that. It's a rich vein. It's stuff I always refer back to. But you recently wrote an article, a joint article, I believe, um, where you say the deadline for rebasing the soldiers from Germany to the UK is approaching. Are we on track? Is that going to happen according to the timescale they've set out? Well, it's a shame Mitra's not here because he was recently um, shown around one of the estates. See, they're building all these new estates. The, the geography of the plain is it's a massive area and it's not hugely built up. It's quite inaccessible. Wiltshire generally sort of encompasses Salisbury Plain. Anyone who's driven to Stonehenge or driven past Stonehenge will know what the area looks like. Mm. You know, it's very unusual. And there are these, if you take a back road off the A303, which is the famous one that's always blocked because of Stonehenge, if you go in the back roads, you will come across military training areas, signs that tanks are crossing. There are several camps that one wouldn't really call them towns. They really are sort of military camps. Mm -hmm. And they are connected to this sort of network of of the existing military base, which has this history that um, Antonia referred to. And Tidworth itself is a garrison town. In other words, it was built around the garrison in, I think, in 1905. It has, you know, heritage buildings from that era, which are all called uh, after names of cities or places in the former empire. And they sort of line the road and they just remind you all the time where, um, what this country's past has been. So that town was 75% military personnel or military related and so that's the that's the kind of centre of these um, expansions. So all around there, we see these new housing estates built on chalk downland, which is so all the, all the earth in the housing estates is is white, is sparkling white. And we see these new estates here, there, and everywhere linked to these other camps. So in terms of trying to find out, you know, we were told people were going to start arriving sixty families a day in March. You know, you just imagine the moving vehicles, mm. all the logistics, how people were feeling. So that's one thing that Antonia will speak about. It's slightly more complicated, as it turns out, because of the different way that the, the military itself organises things compared to what you might expect from democratic institutions like local government. They work in a completely different way. It's been very difficult to get a real idea of numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, the official statistics talked about 4,000 soldiers and their families with estimations of 7,000 new people arriving in the area. 
um, the new housing in one area is being filled up. But our current understanding is that there's been a lot of last minute logistical changes about where right. people are going to be sent. So there's housing that remains empty and then there's areas which have been filled up and which are going to have further strain on local resources. And all this is very difficult for local authorities who've been desperately, like schools and you know GPs, they've been desperately scrambling to try and make sure there's enough provision because mm-hmm. um, although personnel in this part of the UK, the dependents of personnel, sorry, they are eligible for um, to join the Army Medical Centre, um, the reality is that there isn't enough spaces for them, so the GPs know that it's going to fall on them. And they all need, schools and GPs, they need nine months notice. to a year notice. Yes. Um, in order to get the funding from the government yeah. for, um, in, you know, to, to hire a new GP, uh-huh. to get a new teacher, money to build new classrooms. Yeah. And so a lot of them have taken that risk on themselves yeah. um, to try and prepare. But like I said, the numbers game is quite complicated with the military. And um, there has been huge amounts of, of meetings and consultations and attempts to kind of rationalise the process. Um, but, you know, things have been done, like calculations have been made about the numbers arriving on the basis of national statistics about how many children people have. Mm-hmm. But military families tend to be a little bit bigger than the national average. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that, that a lot of that stuff is still quite unclear. And then on the side of the personnel who um, and their fam- the family members who are moving over, particularly from Germany, there's a lot of... I follow a lot of stuff on social media and there's a lot of um, frustration, worry and shock um, about what life turns out to be like in the UK. Mm-hmm. Germany has a much stronger social welfare net than this country does. So I heard a story just last week about um, a mother seeing the daily childcare costs of a local nursery and thinking that it was the monthly costs and saying, oh, well, that's great, it's cheaper than Germany. And then she was told, no, that's the daily cost. Mm-hmm. So if you've got children under three, you're not going to be able to go back to work mm-hmm. if your partner's on a particular salary. So there's there's a lot of um, anxiety um, for them and we hope to talk to more of them in the coming months. So you've touched on this a bit in terms of capacity with local schools and GP surgeries but could you, is there anything more to say about the local impact? Well environmentally there's going to be a massive impact in terms of it being a rural quite isolated area with um, not the many, I mean we talked about the A303 being constantly full of traffic and there's plans to divert that traffic around Stonehenge but we're talking about rural small roads. People coming from Germany have been um, given the funds to get a car but we're talking about masses of new cars on the roads and actually if you go around through these areas at the moment you're always in traffic jams alongside massive tanks Mm. also trying to get through. So they have been building car parks but there's going to be an environmental impact because the road networks across the plain are not built for massive population sizes Uh, and a lot of these areas are designated heritage sites. Stonehenge is a wonderful place that presents a number of challenges in terms of the kinds of building work you can do around there. Um, so I would say environmental and, you know, local people like the fact that it's isolated and countryside, you know, and it's not going to it's not going to end up that way mm-hmm. over the next decade. It's going to become sort of a large military sprawl, as we've been calling it, you know. And I think you have to look at it in, in connection with Andover, <coughs> Andover as well, because Andover is one of those towns where the, um, Marks and Spencer closed down first last year and a lot of boarded up shops and there are huge issues there and always have been there's very few leisure facilities yeah. uh, leisure facilities are very important because one of the first things 
that uh, the MOD decide to do is build a big leisure centre in, say, Aldershot, or as it is in Tidworth, which is open to civilians and to military. Uh, it's all very nice. Here we are. You live in a military place. You can have access to our superior facilities for leisure. However, there are interesting issues like the, the temperature of the water, the swimming pool water, in a military swimming pool has to be quite a lot lower than it would be in a normal mm. civic municipal pool, which doesn't make a lot of people happy. It's a very so cold swim, um, <laughs> as I know myself. And, you know, you could be doing a front crawl and suddenly you open your eyes and you see a load of military uniforms in a, in a room, like military diving suits and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So there's that kind of cohabitation and a lot of tensions around the use of this wide open rural space, you know, because people want to walk their dogs, they want to go hiking, they want to do nature exploration, they want to ride quad bikes, they want to go horse riding. And these areas are being used for live military practice. It's, uh, it's like the strange, probably the strangest inversion of uh, they come over here. <laughs> but obviously they're coming back here because they, I guess a lot of them are British, but it's, it's a strange um, clash, That's isn't it? German wives. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Um, mm. It's interesting. It's got potential for uh, some interesting clashes. But it's a question that I considered when I was a young soldier in the garrison town. Where we weren't very popular. I was in the army of uh, your book, Military Migrants, um, kind of to early 2000s. Uh, and there were separate pubs for us and civilians. Um, and so it, I've come to reflect on what it's like for a civilian to live in an army town in the UK and some, what are some of the um, everyday experiences uh, that differ from life in a non-military town. Can you speak to that for us? Well, I think you're right to point about that separation. I think that, that does definitely continue. Tidworth, as I said, it was 75% military, so in a way the people who lived there who weren't military were kind of used to it and knew what they were getting, and their experience, I would say, is not that typical. Um, Mitra's been having an interesting experience because his nationality is Nepali, and so he's been able to access and, and get to know the local Nepali Gurkha veteran community uh, of different ages, mm. from the elderly through to the newly veteran people. But he's not really been able to speak to the serving soldiers. That actually that that um, barrier exists between even within the sort of even within the, for the Nepalis, the Gurkha yes. do not talk to serving Why is that? I think they don't agree with each other on a lot of things. Okay. Um, and they see themselves, currently serving Nepali troops, see themselves very differently. Mm -hmm. And the Gurkhas, there's generational issues. Mm -hmm. And the reason the Gurkhas are important is that they, they are being expanded at the moment. Mm -hmm. Their one area of the army is being expanded and they're recruiting currently 430 young men from mm -hmm. Nepal every year. And of course they're being trained in Yorkshire and they're actually making a new um, contingent. Whole, whole battalion, isn't it? Yeah, a new, um, of Gurkhas, which is, which is very under-examined, actually. So we're, we're very lucky to have Mitra with us, who can track that. His PhD was actually about caste relations amongst the Gurkha settled communities in the UK. He did his field work in Aldershot mm -hmm. <coughs> a few years ago. So he's very up to speed in, in the sort of community dynamics mm. um, on, <coughs> on many levels. I mean, I think... Um, in terms of civilian experiences, the things that we need to point out are around the noise of war and war preparation. Mm -hmm. Sounds of freedom, I won't tell them. <laughs> you know, the tanks barreling through town and uh -huh. the, the popping sounds mm -hmm. are almost always heard. And military helicopters, Chinooks, and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, people in uniform everywhere. But quite interestingly, a lot of the time, you have to point that out to local people because they've kind of become inured to it mm. and that's a sort of mark of a kind of tacit, passive way in which they ac accept the military presence there. That's a kind of marker of militarisation, the fact that they think nothing of it. So when I talk to 
I've been talking to a lot of young people in schools and people from civilian families who've got, you know, whose grandparents are from Wiltshire and they've grown up there don't think anything of any of this. It's actually the children of serving troops who have got a much greater sense of, of um, the institution that they're part of mm -hmm. and, and what it does. So that's kind of interesting. Um, I talked about tensions around how people use the space and the mm -hmm. countryside and how circumscribed it is. Uh, you've mentioned antisocial behaviour um, and actually it's quite difficult to get a sense of whether or not there are separate pubs. You hear diff I, I spoke to a police superintendent the other week and he was saying, oh, look, you know, the official account is that the military live very, very happily alongside mm -hmm. civilians and the soldiers sure. all go home at the weekends that you know the town empties and they go elsewhere to socialize and so there aren't there aren't any antisocial behavior issues although obviously there was a documentary on channel 4 recently 999 mm -hmm. what's your emergency which looked at um, issues around alcohol abuse and also sexual harassment and mental health issues with soldiers in Wiltshire so, right um, one of the interesting things is that in, in 2009, Wiltshire Council did an audit of the impact of having military bases in Wiltshire. Okay. No one had ever done that before. They counted up so many different things. Who did recycling? How many teenage pregnancies? Because a lot of younger soldiers had younger partners who were teenagers themselves. So they kind of upped the figure of teenage pregnancies wow. in Wiltshire. Um, you know, many different categories of information about how, what it meant to actually have the military organisations living in your area economic, cultural, social, political, so on and so forth. And they've continued to kind of keep that research up to date. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very useful. But it's, it's, it's sort of unprecedented. It's mm. also nobody really did that before. And, of course, it you know, has fascinating data in it. I think one of the factors of this new policy is an attempt to encourage people to stay in the area when they retire or they leave the army, the armed forces. So housing becomes incredibly important mm -hmm. in terms of building housing that people have an option to buy because you think army housing traditionally, these horrible estates that have horrible damp and horrible, horrible mm. problems and are all sold off to private you know, entities and so on and so forth. That's a whole other story we can't really go into here. Mm -hmm. So this new building, there is an idea that you know, first people might be encouraged to buy and settle and then the quote-unquote wives who are the ones who are driving the men to leave the army because they don't like moving around every three years and it has a bad effect on their kids and so on and so forth, that they will want to stay and put down roots and get jobs and so on and so forth mm -hmm. and that will help with the recruitment problem. So that's that's that was at one point one thing being talked but also getting veterans to stay in the area mm -hmm. and kind of also helping to be part of the um, the transition of an area or the, or the meeting point of people who are both civilians but have this intimate knowledge of, of the military. Uh, having said that, that area is somewhere where a lot of military people retired after 1945, 1946, a lot of military people retired around there, but that's, you know, that's the background. Um, so going back to the sense of what it's like to live there, what Mitra particularly has uncovered, and, and uh, Antonia through her interviews with, particularly with, can I say, officers' wives, or, mm. or, or, you know, hanging out with people who've been very kind and generous with their time, um, is, a, is a sense of sort of security, but also fear and paranoia mm. that we've picked up in terms of well, the unexploded munition dumps that could go off and destroy the whole county, you know, overnight. Or there's Porton Down over the hill. If anything oh, went yes. wrong there, then we're all done for. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, you have Salisbury. So there's the Norwich fallout mm -hmm. yeah. and all that. 
and that's partly why they had the Armed Forces Day in Salisbury this mm-hmm. year. Yeah, we picked up on that. It's an interesting mm-hmm. choice, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, the, so you get this sort of mixture of, of, of paranoia and fear that something terrible might happen, or that the army itself might be a target of terrorism. Sure. So those, I think, are quite profound. They sort of mirror the, probably the, a lot of the population as a whole, mm-hmm. but they're very intense down there. At the same time, people don't know what's going on, and you've spoken to people who... They don't know where the, the men are, obviously, predominantly... You know, male-dominated organisation, but they don't know what they're doing. Any, any, only only time they know where they are is Friday afternoon when they come and help their pick their kids up from school. But otherwise, you know, exercise in Canada, up in the Arctic, there's no very, kind of transparency very, about where well, they uh, actually are. I think that probably reflects general um, feelings about or, or lack of understanding about what personnel are, are doing. Recently, yeah. this has become very vague. You mentioned housing and how there's a there's there's new housing that's that's coming into place and there's been all kinds of problems with welfare. Uh, in your um, open democracy piece, you mentioned um, a leaked report that was saying that accommodation was not fit for animals in that area, and so now new housing is being built. I would say one of the more interesting things about housing at now actually is an attempt to mix not only mix ranks because before it was officer housing and then rank housing, and also to mix military and civilian families which mm-hmm. is really not done before we came across that in colchester and and neither group liked it mm-hmm. military families didn't like it because they couldn't leave their quote unquote doors open um and they couldn't look out for each other so easily when the soldiers were away mm-hmm. and that was particularly true of the parachute regiment in colchester you know they needed to know they had their kind of people around them and you know there, there were a lot of issues in that so that seemed absolutely fascinating because that really is an attempt to try and push families together mm-hmm. and offload a lot of the responsibility mm-hmm. onto mm-hmm. local government and local agencies. Mm-hmm. And it represents a cutting away of like support networks that military families have relied on. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of this is quite heavily stigmatised. I've spoke to officers' wives who said, oh, well, if I live in a mi- mixed-ranks housing, it's a disaster because I wouldn't necessarily trust the soldier's wife next door to watch my children if I have to run out with another child. Or, mm-hmm. um, and the same for civilian communities who I won't know as well, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so it, it brings out a lot of these kind of um, quite separate tensions. Like divisive. Yeah. Divisive yeah. tensions mm-hmm. that there's exist. A, uh, there's a kind of hierarchy of contempt, the bottom of which is the enemy. But higher up, there are other soldiers from other units, so even cross-regiment, even if it's a guy from a different regiment down the road, it could be an issue. But then civilians, particular contempt is reserved for civilians. That said, we've also um, talked about the uh, the idea of the MOD is pushing for personnel to privately seek out accommodation. Well, Andover is having a phenomenal amount of rebuilding anyway. I mean, really phenomenal, mm-hmm. as far as I can see, with very little infrastructure. In <clears throat> 2011, I was just sort of wrapping up my research and I had to go and interview some people who'd been moved from Bulford, where there had been another scandal about the housing, and so mm-hmm. they'd torn it all down and were rebuilding it. Um, Bulford is one of the camps I'd mentioned. So people were rehoused in these houses that were being built. Uh, I wouldn't say it was being built as affordable or social housing, but it did a deal with Andover mm-hmm. uh, or, or the local council there and housed, um, there were at least 100 families in these new, very new, nice houses that were quite some distance away from the camps themselves. So and I suspect a lot of that has been going on and I, I, I think it, it's quite complex. I mean, we, we haven't yet researched the... Have you met with Lovell yet? I'm meeting with Lovell. Yeah, they had well, I'm meeting with their PR 
branch. Mm -hmm. It's one company that's building most of the most right. of the houses. The military all, housing state. Okay. All these estates. So financially, how it's done is mm. something we, we get to yeah probe. Mm -hmm. And they've been using a lot of um, new approaches to building, which have allowed them to build extremely quickly. Um, so using what, no, no no, yeah mm. sort of Scandinavian techniques, oh, and okay. they're sort of using it as a um, they're using their military building as a kind of example of best practice for building across oh. the UK. So that potentially has implications for the kind of future housing that we'll have in this country, and I don't mm. know how environmentally friendly it will be. Sure. Interesting. Sure. So we, we spoke about the um, the feeling of being a civilian experience yeah. in a military town. I when I was in Germany, it was a bit of a cushy number. You got yeah. like subsidised beer, you got cheap fags. It was like a nicer place to be, and lots of people chose it on that basis. What's your understanding of how people feel about suddenly being? We touched on it briefly before, suddenly being like brought back to the UK. I'm going to raise an issue, which is, um, so to do research like this, you would think that, you know, serious sociologists, anthropologists coming and looking at this, the effects of these plans would be something which the Ministry of Defence or, you know, the army itself would be open to, having a dialogue. Yeah. Um, so we'd built up, particularly Antonio built up very good relations, following on from my contacts that I've mentioned before. Um, with the local garrison. And of course, over time, and you know, even the army was shocked how long it took for us to actually get a grant to do this work. You know, it was years. So, you know, when it comes to saying, can we talk to soldiers, you know, as well as their families, or mm -hmm. can we kind of reassure soldiers' families that we have permission from the army that we can talk to you? Uh, there was the usual hesitation and demand that we go through their form of sort of ethics review, yeah. which is very forbidding and would have put us back another probably two years. Mm. Um, we're really interested in the interface, in the interactions and the connections. So we're less, in a sense, less interested in the army itself. You know, they need not have worried. We're not really going to talk to soldiers about how they feel about being in the army and all that. We're interested in the kind of conditions of having an army at all and what it means for us as a society. So that's what we're interested in, which we have every right to do. So yeah. we've followed our own, you know, university ethics procedures, and everybody's, you know, everybody's asked for signed permission and given anonymity and all the rest of it, and, and you know, we ask for their trust. Um, but really, it's, it is about the impact on society, and it is about the point at which people meet. So that's why we can't necessarily answer your question so much about what it's like to be, you know, a soldier living in that area or come back from. Germany. We're just really interested in how, you know, how families cope. Apart I mean, from anything else, we haven't been included in those negotiation processes. Mm -hmm. We've just heard about them from, like, the Army Family Federation and their experience of going over to Germany. Or, you know, I might meet a German wife and she'll tell me how she's been having, you know, discussions with mm -hmm. people who've just come over. So we sort of hear about some of this stuff peripherally. Um, there's a lot of kind of protectiveness over the dependence of personnel who are civilians, really, and who the army doesn't have purview mm -hmm. over. They don't have the right to tell them to not talk to us. Mm -hmm. um, so we've encountered a huge, um, quite I've encountered quite a lot of paranoia and distrust from people in the army saying to me that I don't have the right to go and talk to certain people, mm -hmm. which is absolutely not the case. You're not the first people to, academics to say to us that they're struggling to kind of, that, that these barriers but I've been through a moderate box. process with my mm. last... I didn't actually, thankfully, have to fill in the moderate form, which was really long, the one I saw, and that's for my project that I did with reservists, because we were talking to personnel mm. then, and the army insisted. And um, that did not necessarily ease questions of access to personnel, because people still didn't want to help, people didn't want to spend their time yeah. um, putting us in touch with units. 
and um, then people would change jobs and we'd have to start mm -hmm. from the beginning. So it, these, um, I think that, you know, the difficulties are multifarious. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we, we, um, we interviewed um, uh, Victoria Basham earlier and she talked about how a lot of her, her initial work when she started to look at the military came at a, a time, a particularly unusual time where there was kind of a thaw in the military almost courted a certain amount of access. And my impression from her and other people we've had on is that since then there's been a locking down what degree of that is kind of the tribal stuff of the military and what degree is like handed down, is insisted upon from people on high, is, um, is a, a mystery to me, but it really does seem like there's there's more resistance now than there was to perhaps early 2000s. Yeah. Um, and there's, they've kind of clamped down on access from outside. Well, in my experience, because that's when I began as well, that's why I said I had generous people who were, who were only too happy to help you in talk about anything for a short time and who you know became part of a civic engagement, that the people who are stopping you are actually civilians inside the institution, inside the MOD, even inside the military civilian in initiative, mm -hmm. they're the ones who are going to find objections and make you jump over hoops and things like that. That is interesting, isn't it? So they're, they're the gatekeepers, in fact. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think that in military being such a hierarchical organisation, then there's always the thing of, like, if you make a decision, you're accountable to it, mm -hmm. to, your, to your superior. So you're always looking up uh, to see you're not going to get into trouble. And you can't go up the chain of command to ask if you can okay something or request from somebody. So the difficulty for us is finding the right person to talk to who mm -hmm. can send instructions downwards. Mm -hmm. And people don't know, a lot of the time, they don't know the people we're referring to who might have said it's okay for us to do certain mm -hmm. things. They've never heard of them. Yeah. They have a different chain of command. I mean, we're talking about people in the same small town. Mm -hmm. yeah. So. yeah, that's the same being in the military that no yes. one really knows. So I think people only have this impression that we're being highly organised and everyone seems to know. So, um, just to, I mean, you've talked about some of, some of the problems you've run into, but what other difficulties have you come across in your research and what has been particularly interesting or revelatory or enjoyable about, um, about the work you've done so far? Well, you talked about the difficulties of access, but also maintaining a connection with people that I found very difficult to sort of explain the kind of rigours of doing ethnographic type methods where you might want to meet up with someone over a number of months mm -hmm. and it's been very difficult to um, keep things going so I might spend a few weeks doing something with somebody going for walks in the countryside with, a, with an officer's wife but mm -hmm. that will fade out quite quickly and I think I think part of that is the kind of pressure that people in these communities are under in mm -hmm. terms of how many managing a family and, and things like that. I should say that Antonia's been incredible in getting access to schools. Yeah. And she's actually mm -hmm. interviewed seven-year-olds and she's been working in secondary schools as well, wow. which is a very hard thing to do. And it's partly mm -hmm. that, you know, you've really worked very hard to explain the project and yeah. talk to people exactly what you're doing. And the Army Family Federation has also been su supportive. But uh, quite distant. Quite distant because in they, after all, are, account are answerable. Yeah. Um, I think that if we... A lot of the difficulties explain to people what how we're trying to do stuff. So I've been spending time at a, um, a coffee morning for military wives. It's in a cafe that's actually open to the civilian public, but we weren't able to actually go and talk to anybody without obstruction until um, Army Welfare Service had kind of ushered us in through mm -hmm. the door. But they've sort of understood, that's been one of the pleasures of actually going and talking to these women and sitting with their children and chatting to them, because they've understood that I just want to sit and hang out with them you know, one week there's a flurry of commotion about, you know, Armed Forces Day and how they're going to get their kids to see their husbands in the parades. And the next week we're talking about, you know, school places for their children. And I sort of, you get, a, that's been a pleasure to kind of be, 
to hear about that, to hear about their love lives, their intimate lives and their stories with their husbands and all those kinds of things. That's been a real privilege to hear that. And so they kind of have really got what I'm trying to do. And so I've enjoyed that. And I've enjoyed, we've, you know, we've been walking around the countryside. We've been, the IO has taken us around the plain. So kind of getting that sense of a kind of sedimented military history mm. has been really powerful, although I suspect my feelings about that are different from the civil servant at the DIO who's taking me sure. around there. But Mitra's um, became friendly with a, a farmer because he was interested in what happened to the animals. Yeah. So he's, oh. he was, you know, he's been to see the farmer a couple of times. The farmer's taken him out and has sort of invited us to come as well to look and see what are the conditions under which you farm. What happens when you know, some young guy in a tank runs over your sheep. Uh-huh. You know, do you get any compensation? No. Does that happen no. often? Yes, it, it does. does. Really? It does, and on your crops, and you just get you just get um, a low rent. You don't get any compensation, oh. for example, unless I misunderstood, but that's, that was quite surprising to us. But, but, you know, there are ways in which people have historically come to live together with this mm-hmm. beast, you know, that's there. And it's a very particular landscape. I mean, you could, you could get lost, you know, you could get lost wandering around on it. Um, and, of course, there's... You know, there is an amazing story about wildlife as well because of um, lack of sprays and pesticides and the rest of it, which we've also been investigating to think about that side of it as well, also environmental impact. It just sounds absolutely fascinating. So really looking forward to keeping up to date with the progress and then, um, you know, your, your kind of final outputs as well. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the timeline from, from now for your project um, and how can we and other people follow your progress? Well, we have actually revived this as Up in Arms, which was my originally my column, regular column on open democracy. Um, that uh, is, we're going to keep up that up periodically. But I've also revived my own website, militarymigrants.org, mm-hmm. and we're going to have much more shorter accounts on that. Great, militarymigrants.org. Yeah. Great. Okay. Because um, yeah, mm-hmm. there there are other angles we haven't exactly covered about you know what happens to the veterans from Commonwealth backgrounds who retire around there mm-hmm. and what you know what occupations they take up, how they find it, how they make communities and so on, which mm-hmm. is another a layer that we've mm-hmm. been looking at. Not just Nepali but Ghanaian and Fijian and so on. Um, do you have any social media we can follow? I found doing two Twitter accounts too much so it would just be mine which is uh, Vronsta, V-R-O-N-S-T-A. I am on Twitter. Really? I don't do much on there. Sure. But, but it's, it's still good, you know, people might want to follow you. I'll do something um, with it. You're doing such now. interesting work. So, so it's <laughs> at Antonia Lucia, L- Antonia, A-N-T-O-N-I-A, Lucia, L-U-C-I-A, all stuck together. I mean, I think with it, with research like this, which is sort of incremental and it takes time, you know, we don't want to sort of burst out with, like, findings uh-huh. immediately. Mm-hmm. But it's things we need to digest and put in relation to each other. And I think we're still tracking. But, yeah, we're, we're, we're still tracking. We're still tracking really. stuff. Mm-hmm. But we've we've started to put together an outline of, of the book and how we're going to approach Wonderful. it. And you know we're lucky to have Paul Dixon involved in it as well. Mm-hmm. So he and I are going to work on an introduction which looks at these things historically. Great. Although I haven't told him yet. And um, he will be. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Paul. <laughs> um, yeah, so so hopefully we can make it part of the story that we've all been trying to tell. You know, mm. and of course, if you have any input, that would be fantastic as well. Mm. Um, so probably in terms of the timeline, we always envisage that we do year, it's a two-year um, grant. So we would do 
a year full-on investigation and then a year really trying to sift through it and just filling in rope gaps where we need it. And, and when does that take us up to? For the so we're now nearly halfway through. Okay, brilliant. So, so about a year from now? About a year from now, we should uh-huh. have a sort of working draft of the whole thing, yes. And, and, and have written other outputs to try and sort of try out some of the ideas. Okay, well that's going to be really quite gra- groundbreaking when it comes out, so exciting, looking forward to it. Um, so thank you for coming on to Worry Nation. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you both. Uh, and then please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at, at @forceswatch, and support us and check out the resources on our website at forceswatch.net. Thank you very much.